So our next speaker is Shi He. Hopefully I got that right. And uh, she is currently the ACLS Robert N. Uh, H. N. Ho Family Foundation postdoctoral fellow in the group in Buddhist studies at the University of California at Berkeley. Yeah. She received her PhD in South Asian studies at the University of Chicago in 2012. Her primary research interests are comparative textual study of Buddhist texts in the canonical languages of Pali, Sanskrit, Chinese, and Tibetan. Emotions, women, gender, and sexuality in South Asian religious traditions and contemporary Chinese Buddhism. Her book project tentatively entitled Life of the Buddha, Literary Design and Religious Emotions in the Lalita Vistara, hopefully I said that right, explores how Buddhist values and ideals are textualized in Buddhist narratives and the close relationship between Sanskrit literary culture and Buddhist uh, emotions. This semester, she's teaching a class on women in Buddhist traditions. She's honored to have this opportunity to celebrate the contributions of women to Buddhism and the achievements of Aloka Vihara. She was very happily telling me that she um, is converted to be a lay woman, um, and she showed me the certificate. Um, so I'm very happy to extend this happiness today to celebrate um, women in Buddhism for 2,500 years. And um, today I will talk a little bit. Just um, I actually don't know much about Namsim <laughs> in Buddhism or in Bali tradition, but I will try. Um, so, Piku Ananda Jodi compiled a list of uh, um, more than 100 um, non-disciples of the Buddha um, in the um, Sutta Bhidaga and uh, its commentaries. Um, 70 na- 73 names in the Tedigata, um, which we know the first poems of, of Buddhist women. Um, there are 40 in the Teri Abhadanas and the Teri Abhadana Dibani. And 13 from the Anguttara uh, Nigaya, which is a list of outstanding nuns. Also, we find um, 10 nun stories in the um, Pikuni Sanyutta of the Sanyutta Nigaya. The some names appear in the Tenbada commentary, Jada commentary, and other Bali texts. As you know, in addition to these 100 names, um, there are many other names. Um, Pikuni's names that can be found in the Vinaya and the other body literature, and we just um, heard that you know 500 Shakya women they join the Sangha, they become nuns. Um, also, 
um, we know, for example, one of the most famous nuns of the Buddha's time is Sankamida, who was the daughter of Emperor Ashoka. She went to Sri Lanka with her equally famous Pikku brother, Mahinda, to spread Buddhism, and she established the Pikuni Sangha in that land. And there's still more nuns whose names were not recorded, but who lived and practiced faithfully following the Buddha's teaching in Bali literature and in reality. How are the nuns portrayed in Bali texts? What roles did they play in early Buddhism? And most importantly, how did they perceive themselves and describe their own experiences? In this short presentation, I will first make several general comments uh, regarding nuns' roles in early body texts. Then I will focus on how the nuns perceive themselves and describe their own experiences and practice in the, in the Tedigata and uh, in the Samyutta Nikaya. The general attitude in the Buddha's time is that women are dependent, independent, and their understanding is weak. They are confined in the house, and their value exists in their labor at home and in their bearing of children. Their status can be reflected by this sentence in the Manu Smurti, the laws of Manu, call. Her father protects her in girlhood. Her husband protects her in youth. Her son protects her in old age. A woman does not deserve independence, call end. Thus, the significance of the establishment of nuns' order, an integral component of the fourfold sankha, is profound because it recognized women's ability in spiritual pursuits and offered them the opportunity to religiosity, even though various traditions report that the Buddha reluctantly granted the permission. In his article entitled, how and why did the women in ancient India become Buddhist nuns? Arvinda Sharma studies 71 cases and concludes that in at least 42 cases, it was not the financial, personal, or familial or social deprivation, but rather the spiritual attraction of Buddhism that led women to become nuns. We found names and lists of names and of eminent non-disciples in Bali Suttas and Vinaya. For example, Mahabhajabhadi, God Me, was proclaimed by the Buddha as foremost of long-standing among his disciples and outstanding for her wide knowledge. Kema was known for her wisdom and eloquence. Upalavana was eminent for her supernatural power, there's a famous story in Naret how she transformed herself to a universal monarch in order to get to the front of the crowd to receive the Buddha who just returned after a long sojourn in heaven. Um, Gina Dada was an expert in the Vinaya. Tualananda, Mpata, Gabilani, and Sumaita were experts at preaching the Tanama. Sukha was such an outstanding nun that even spirits would roam the roads of the town to um, chastise um, those who do not go to listen to her teaching. 
From these few examples, we can see that early Buddhist nuns not only had the aspiration for spiritual pursuit, but also has, had abilities to do so, like bhikkhus. They left home to live a homeless life. They practiced, they exerted, they taught, they accomplished their religious goals. They were respected and praised. And equally significantly, their lives and stories were recorded and survived more than 2,000 years of patriarchal society during which most women were deprived of the rights of education and during which women's voices were hardly heard. Precisely because of these stories and the records, we can today honor and celebrate their achievements and we are still inspired by them. While most of these records and stories provide us with useful information about what the Pikunis did and what they achieved, these accounts give more weight, quoting from Alice Collette, quote, two attitudes towards women, and this mostly being male attitudes to women, than to women's own experience or the, or the recounting of women's own apparent experience, co-end. And some modern scholarship provides deep disturbing images of Buddhist women and nuns, which in many ways does not deconstruct the stock description of women as evil, weak, and sex-driven, and the women's bodies as gross and vile, but rather reinforces the conception that women are dependent, incapable, and seductive, which, as we just heard, was prevalent more than 2,000 years ago in ancient India. Thus, it is important to read these stories of women, including nuns, in their specific Indian context and to try to listen to what they say about their experience rather than scrutinizing them through our, old, our modern lens of vision. In the following, we will closely read several poems and stories and explore how the Pikunis perceive and experience their bodies the experience with sensory pleasures, the cultivation of mind, the perception of freedom, and their joy of being free. The first poem is by Amber Bala. Um, Diana just mentioned uh, Amber Bala as generous and devoted laywoman who made many offerings to the Buddha and the Sangha. Now we we'll take a look at what her experience was as a bhikkhuni. In the Tedigata, we have 19 verses spoken by her after she went forth and again when she achieved enlightenment. These verses represent some of the most beautifully written poetry in Bali literature, expressed in such elegant language and endowed with such profound meaning. Their sophistication and insight shine no less than poetry by the great poets Madhijeta and Ashvakosha in the first few centuries of the common era. In 17 parallel verses, she describes the beauty of different parts of her body in youth, in contrast to their broken and fragile shape in old age. Then, in two last similarly structured verses, she recapitulates the contrast between the beauty of her body described earlier and the decay now. In each of the 19 verses, in the total diameter, the first two, the rulers, 
describes the beauty of her youth. The third, the ruler describes what it looks like now. And in the fourth, the ruler of each verse, the phrase, as you can see from your handout, such vadi virginum anagnata is repeated. It is just as the Buddha, the speaker of truth, said, nothing different than that. Describing the beauty of a woman in poetic language from top to bottom is a poetic convention found in the later Sanskrit literary tradition. In Ambabali's verses, the color, the scent, the scent, and the shape of her hair. I only give three verses in your handout、um, because it's too long to give all 19. Of her hair was compared in three similes with black bees. Perfumed box fixed, fix, filled with flowers and thick and well-planted forest grove. Next, her head, eyebrows, eyes, nose, earlobes, teeth, voice, neck, arms, hands, and breasts are also described charmingly in comparison to the beautiful things in nature and in the world. Thus far, in each verse, we first enjoy the beauty and the youth of Ambabali and the similar beauty and charm of nature and in the world. However, abruptly, her shabby and broken body parts are presented to us in comparison to the shabby and broken things in the world. Her beauty, just like the beauty in nature, disappears. Her hair is like jute. It smells like rabbit fur, and is sparse in many spots. The poems force us to stop severing the beauty of her body and the beautiful things brought up by her beauty, and come to the realization: indeed, just as the Buddha said, all is impermanent. Her beauty, the beautiful things in the world, and ourselves. Thus, Ambabali. Guided us to experience three layers of perceptions and sentiment in three lakhos: her physical body, the world, and the reality. The beauty and the pleasure of her body and the beautiful things in the world change, but the reality beyond sensual pleasures and the beautiful things is always reality, instantly recognized by enlightened people. Or unrecognized by unenlightened people who reach this realization after going through confusion and emotional upheaval. The first three zeros may seem to be the celebration of her physical beauty and her lamentation of her lost beauty, but it turns out to be her meditation on the impermanence of her body and everything in connection to her body. By repeating the short phrase called "It is just as the Buddha, the speaker of truth, said," nothing different than that called end in each verse. Amber Bali celebrated her realization and took delight in her freedom. In Subha's story, Subha revealed the reality of her body in an extreme way by gouging out her eye. In her poem, Supa narrated the story of the young man who saw her going to the forest to rest at middle day, and was infatuated by her. He followed her and tried to seduce her. 
He described to her the sweet air, blossomed flowers, love-making canopy, and all these conditions seen in classical love poetry in South Asia to evoke erotic emotion. But she told him that what he saw was not what they really were. The young man did not give up. He was especially captivated by the beauty of her eyes. In three verses, he compared her eyes to those of a fawn, to blue lotuses, and to the bashful eyes of a kindergartner, and told her how these beautiful eyes increased his delight in preparing to make love to her. She answered again that he was blind and could not see reality as it was. Up to this point, the conflict between Supa and the young man reached its reaches its peak, calling for a resolution. Supa gouged out her eye and gave it to the man, saying, "Here, take the eye. It is yours." <laughs> Only at this very moment did the young man wake up and beg for her forgiveness. The nun Supa miraculously recovered her eye when she went to see the Buddha. As Supa described in your handout, eyes are just like little balls in various shapes, with its tears. An eye is a bubble of water between the eyelids, like a little ball of luck in the hollow of a tree, and the milky mucus comes out of it. For Supa, an eye is just a conditioned substance. However, the young man saw her eyes differently. When they are part of her body, they are beautiful and infatuating to him. But when the eye is gouged out, the beauty of the eye is no more. For Supa, her insight is as usual. Even the eye is gouged out, the beauty of the, I'm sorry. But the, for the young man, his sight is transformed because of her insight. The recovery of her eye by the Buddha is testimony to her insight and also celebration of her freedom. We are familiar with the story of the Bodhisattva and Mala's daughters who tried to seduce him before his enlightenment. In Supa's poem, the young man is the incarnation of Mala's daughters in his female form. I'm sorry, in his male form. The nun Supa's mind is free. And she takes the young man and us to a reality that goes beyond the reality that is experienced through sensory pleasure. In his study of women in early Buddhism, Alan Sponberg remarks that the idea of women as sexual aggressors and predators pertains to the monks wrestling with their abstention from engaging in sexual activity. Supa's poems reveal the opposite. To the normative description of women as sexual aggressors, aggressors, rather it is the male aggressor who attempts to annihilate her. Supa is not the only nun who has to face this challenge. The Pikuni Sanyuta of Sanyuta Nigaya narrates ten stories of nuns: Mara, the embodiment of evil, desire, and death, created all kinds. Of obstacles for the practice of the nuns. In each story, he approached one nun and attempted to seduce, scare, and disturb the nun 
who was abiding in her daily practice. Each time, the nun recognized Mara's voice and thwarted his attempt. In his comparative study of three of these stories in both the Samyutta Nigaya and the Chinese Samyutta Agama, Bhikkhu Analyo points out that in these stories, it is the male Mara who stands for sensual temptation and sexual aggression. Thus, quote, just as the female form is seen as a snail of Mara for men, so a sexual male is as a snare of Mara for women, co-end. Indeed, we find many nuns experienced struggle with urge and crave for sex, karma, in their poems. They consider this kind of struggle part of the process of their spiritual pursuit and cultivation of mind. They rejoice that their, core passion for sex has shriveled away, co-end. They were happy that they recognized the reality of their body and the sensory pleasure. In her poem to her son, Sumangala, you have in your handout, Sumangala's mother said, quote, As I destroyed anger and the passion for sex, I was reminded of the sun of bamboo being split. I go to the foot of a tree and think, Ah, happiness! And from within that happiness, I began to meditate, co-end. Nuns clearly told Mara that what he calls the delights of sexual pleasure is not delight for them now. In Nun Jala's dialogue with Mara, she told Mara that she entered the place of peace where all mental constructions are stilled, which is happiness itself. To answer Mara's seduction with sexual pleasure, she replied that she is delighted in the Buddha's teaching and his pleasure is not for her because the mass of mental darkness is split open for her, meaning that she attained enlightenment. In stories and poems, Banans, they described their joy in the simple life of homeless, their joy of begging for alms, in one poem on Pudda Gundagesi, she said, China, Anga, Mugata, these are all names of places, Virja, Gasi, and Gosala. For 50 years, I enjoyed the arms of these places. Their joy of being the true daughter of Buddha, their joy in having friends and of their community, their joy in auspicious things, and most of all, their joy in the Buddha's teaching, in Nibbana, in Nibbana, and in being cool and free. I will end my talk with a story about Mara's attempt to undermine non Soma's practice. Mara addressed her, quote, that state so hard to achieve, which is to be attained by the seers, cannot be attained by a woman with her two-fingered wisdom. End. Two-fingered wisdom, which means women's wisdom, they are just two fingers with. Quickly, recognize, quickly recognizing that this is the evil mother who desires to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in her, and, 
and makes her fall away from concentration. Soma replied in two verses. In your handout, you can look at it. What does womanhood matter at all when the mind is concentrated well, when knowledge flows on steadily as one sees correctly into tamma? One is whom it might occur. One to whom it might occur. I am a woman, or I'm a man, or I'm anything at all. Is fit for mother to address. Mana recognized that the piguni knows him and disappeared, saddened and disappointed. Indeed, what does womanhood matter at all if one can see into the tournament? What can a woman not achieve if her mind is concentrated? I have only given you a glimpse of a tiny drop from the ocean of Bali literature, but I hope that I showed how the nuns in these poems and stories honestly and insightfully describe their personal life experience and their transformation. Their meditation on body and sensual pleasure, their joy and happiness in the Buddha's teaching and in being the Buddha's daughters, and their celebration of their being cool and free. All of them transcend time and space, speak to us about ourselves and about our world, and continue to bring us joy and inspire us. Thank you. Any questions for she? Yeah. And there will be a break after this, so just so you have a sense of timing. When I read the um, accounts of in the Samyutta, um, Bhikkhuni Samyutta, and all ten of those nuns who were addressed by Mara, they were already arhants, <laughs> so they had very good responses. It's wonderful to hear that. Um, do you, are you aware of other accounts where Mara addresses um, women, nuns, who weren't already arhants and how they fared? Um, yes, uh, actually in Teridata, there's some also Mara conversation with the nuns, too. Yeah, um, I, I was saying that uh, in the Terigatas, and you can find some stories. Um, actually, some stories in the Terigatas and the, um, the Sanyuda Nigaya, they kind of cross, yes, and yes. Some, some same names. Yes. Um, you can see, you know, I, I'm wondering whether, you know, there are some, you know, Yes, I'm, I'm aware of those. Um, were they not also our hunts? They, they are already, yes. uh, and uh, I think they... They wrote this after, usually after they achieved enlightenment. Right, right. So uh, the question is more of um, there weren't accounts that I'm aware of of, of the nuns or w- lay women who were addressed by Mara um, who weren't already accomplished um, and how they might have fared. I guess we are finding that out for ourselves. <laughs> 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 uh, 
maybe Mara would not try to do that if if they're not enlightened because you know he would think they're not you know his you know counterpart maybe <laughs> not challenging enough. <laughs> Um, actually, um, this can, the reading like in Terigata and these stories in the Sanyuda Nigaya, um, because today it's kind of you know old merits to gross uh, reader gross. Um, I used her her book also in my class, and so she talked about you know all this useful past, you know, which means a lot of people they they read a lot of things about women being evil and weak and. Uh, one of my students, she had a problem with this. She said, people that read this as a fact, you know. It's, it's, so she's very much bothered. Um, so that's why um, really gross. she talked about usable past, you know. You should not only see all this, you know, description of evil and weak. And we should see, you know, description of these women, these great nuns, eminent nuns and lay women. They are the useful past, you know. She thinks they are useful. So I think that's really wonderful. Can you speak a little bit to um, the methods available to you as a scholar, as a woman, and perhaps as a Buddhist to investigate what, how women perceive their own experience, what they felt about their own experience, how ancient Buddhist nuns... Oh, uh, you um, mean... In addition to the kind of literary analysis that you're doing, um, what other tools are available to uh, to uh, enhance or draw out what is useful? Um, yeah, practice, <laughs> uh, like like them. Um, um, you're asking. What other method to to find out this you know materials about women are useful to us? Mm-hmm. Being a teacher, <laughs> um, because like in my class, um, I have likely I have I have two male students. Uh, I was kind of surprised, mostly you know female students. Um, so they really do not know about women in Buddhism at all. Um, so I think taking my class, I think it's kind of education for them, um, you know, to see how women um, were um, represented and how women they think about themselves and how scholars in the West interpret these texts and critique on these materials. Um, it's a very different, you know, pers- perspective. Very diverse, and all the time there are contradictions um, and uh, a lot of uh, ambivalent, you know, descriptions. So how to understand all these contradictions? Um, you know, sometimes you say, um, for example, um, in the Mahayana <laughs> Buddhism, no gender, no male, no female, but in reality, you know. How to translate all these Buddha's great teachings um, into the reality, into the social norms, 
you know, what's the connection? How do you make people understand, you know, the, the huge gap between wonderful teaching and, you know, reality, social norms? How do we work on that to make this translatable? I think, yeah, that's maybe one of the ways. Um, with um, uh, the story of Ananda uh, imploring the Buddha to um, ordain uh, his, uh, I, I, I'm not able to pronounce her name, but uh, the, the mother of the Buddha, the yes. Mahabhajabadi, yes. Thank you. Um, so with that story in mind, I'm, I'm curious, um, where else in the suttas, if at all, um, we hear of monks or laymen, uh, house, householders, um, supporting uh, um, women becoming ordained or women in the practice and so forth. Is it absent or is there any historical... Um, you mean in Bali tradition or in other traditions? Well... In, uh, uh, no, I can... Uh, well... <laughs> I, I think I would say historically, which is historically, probably the Pali, yes. the Pali tradition. Um, Bali tradition, yes, of course, King Ashoka, he sent his daughter there. That, I mean, that's a great support. Um, in Chinese Buddhism, for example, um, before the establishment of the Chinese uh, nuns order, um, the Sri Lankan monk, he went there and he helped establishing, you know, helped ordain the nuns. And uh, even though at that time the Vinaya was not translated, and and then the nuns were kind of ordained the second time. And the first time he said, "Doesn't matter, without the Vinaya." At that time, because you have to do things according to when you're in Rome, you do what the Romans do, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so that's, I mean, that's very, you know. Special, especially thinking now what happened in Sri Lanka. You know, the monks they you know insist that we are not going to take you know accept the the women's order in Sri Lanka. So that's pretty, I think, significant. And Jen will talk more about Mahavajapati soon. <laughs> I want to appreciate your sharing all this. And for me, uh, the stories that you've shared that have been passed down in the polytext tradition have been uh, really so inspiring and so encouraging and, uh, and so unique. And uh, studying a little bit more, I've become aware that uh, there are the Sanskrit texts that mention, uh, what is it, Stavieri Gata? Uh, so there wa were Sanskrit collections, but they've disappeared. Uh, they're gone, and uh, not all the polytext traditions even passed down the Terigata or Teri Apadana. There are those that had uh, didn't didn't retain it, didn't pass it down because the Bikunis had disappeared, so they thought it wasn't relevant anymore. And I'm just appreciating where we're at today, these days, that the traditions that did pass down these texts have survived 
and it's come to the point here in Northern California, United States 2015, that you're able to give this lecture and share so much from so many different places in the canon that's so encouraging and inspiring. Yes, um, thank you. Um, it's, uh, it is, yes, it is very, very, very special. Um, in China, um, there's uh, also non-biography, but not written by themselves um, from the 5th century. And Terigata is especially special because it's written by nuns themselves. So that's, yeah, very unique. I might now respond to you by um, citing a book that uh, I studied last spring called Daughters of Emptiness. Uh, do you remember who um, did that anthology? It's, a, it's a, a collection of poems by Chinese nuns over a thousand years, mm-hmm. and most of them are talking about their awakening as well. Daughters, uh, of, daughters of Emptiness. Uh, you mean from... It's an anthology of... Yeah. Of nuns? Yeah. It's, it's just mind-blowing. It's just beautiful. Uh, probably not from the 5th century, I would think. <laughs> it's a contemporary anthology pulling together different awakening songs. Yeah, probably from... There are a lot of poems, you know, written in the Tang Dynasty by women also. Um, it's like a tradition in East Asia countries. Uh, in Japan also we have that, and uh, especially, yes, in Korea, yeah, we do have all this, yeah. Just going back to the Terigata for a moment, I've always thought that the fact that these are the words of the women themselves is quite believable because it comes down through a lot of tradition that would have weeded it out mm-hmm. if, if it didn't really have some kind of real power uh, of speaking a, a truth. And, um, I mean, I imagine that there were more, but this made it through, and that's always made it feel really authentic to me. Yeah, yeah. Very authentic. Uh, even though it might be later um, compared with the four Nigayas, um, but you can see, we just now we're talking about whether we, uh, the Buddha ordained any lay woman. Um, you can find in the Terigata, in their poem, they say, come, come, yes. Um, so they are you know, just ordinary, some ordinary women some maybe you can say are more upper class, um, but the Buddhas in their point they say, come. So, yeah, that's the tradition. And that was the early form of ordination. Yes, I mean, exactly. That, yeah. Come, yeah, come, yeah. No, you don't need to recite all these precepts or anything. <laughs> just the Buddha says, come then. Come and see. Yeah. I have a question. Yes. Um, are there instances of, of the women, uh, particularly monastics, um, teaching? You know, we, we hear about 
Padachara, for example, teaching other women, but teaching men. You know, there's the one story of, and I forget whether it's Damandina, yeah, and where her her ex-husband basically comes to her for instruction. But are there other instances of that? And and can you maybe say something about that? Yes, they are obviously, you know, the, in the Anguda Nigaya, there's a list, you know, preclaimed all these eminent women and some preachers, the wonderful teachers. And also in the Terigata, um, um, some nuns, they mentioned their teacher, how they, you know, they got into the sangha how they left home because of these teachers, um, how these teachers have changed them. The special, yes, the teacher, what the teacher did and taught them how to meditate and, yeah. I'm just asking if there's any uh, other examples of the women teaching men. Teaching men? Yeah. Uh, teaching men, let me see. Um, I cannot think of any for now. Uh, Kemak, yes, she yeah, she is a great teacher. Um, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, she, yes, she, yes, yeah, that's a very famous story. Yes, um, yeah, I, I think, yeah. There's, I think there's some cases teaching men to, um, yeah, Kema is a good example, yeah, teaching the king. I wonder if any in this room have investigated the Deepavangsa, which is the chronicle of the history of, of uh, the Lanka, mm-hmm. um, that was supposed to be uh, uh, developed and uh, held by the Bikuni uh, community, so it has more emphasis on Bikuni perspective and has a, some. Um, in, it reveals what was happening in the evolution of of the uh, Sangha history after the time of the Buddha. Yeah, I haven't looked at uh, that text uh, even once. Uh, but, um, Ashoka's daughter's story is from the Mahavansa, um, the great uh, lineage. Um, um, yeah, it should, yeah, I think yeah, definitely should look into this. You know, the Bhavansa, Mahavansas. I want to fill in, I don't know, add to what Ayasobana said about the Dipawangsa. It's known as the world, uh, world's first uh, historic chronicle, and it's thought to have been authored by the Bhikkhuni Sangha that was founded in Sri Lanka. Uh, it predates the Mahawangsa and uh, does share Sangamita Terry's story. And I think why Ayasobana may be thinking of it is because it mentions a lineage of women teachers, uh, teachers of Dhamma, teachers of Vinaya, Abhidhamma experts, uh, so there's a long, uh, a long historical mm. list or lineage of uh, women teachers recorded there, and it's unique because it's thought to have been uh, authored by the Bikunis mm. or by the Bikuni Sangha, and it's the first such one. Dipavangsa means like chronicle of the island or chronicle mm-hmm. of the lamp. So then right. there's even the Chinese text that's named yes. after that mm-hmm. that comes later, mm-hmm. and uh, then the Mahawangsa and uh, the others then uh, post date they. Uh, they then this is the bhikkhus then 
writing it again afterwards mm. uh, and filling in more later details, but it speaks to the uh, early strength of the tradition and the really strong position that the bhikkhunis were in in the early days. Mm. Thank you. I, I didn't know that. Any, do you know any scholarship on this text? <laughs> I'll look into that. That's very interesting. Yes. Because yes, yeah. he has a website translating all these uh, Asian texts. Mm. Yeah. Great. So I think we will be taking a break. Um, but I, before we go on break, I wanted to mention that Tanisara's books have arrived. So they're over in the corner there, to the left of the Mahapajapati on that counter there. And uh, we'll take a 15-minute break. We'll be back at 2 o'clock.